Dear Father, we ask that you would be with us just now as we look into the book of Matthew. And we can hardly take it in, really, that the one, the gentle and kind one who walked among us for those three and a half years was none other than God. But we pray that you would open our minds just now that whatever conception we might have of what you were like, that we would allow you to improve and elevate our picture of God that becomes more and more like Jesus. Amen. Now, before we just get into the book of Matthew, I wanted to just go back and talk a little bit about building up and what happened just coming up to the birth of Jesus. We made a big deal in this Bible study talking about the war in heaven. And we know something was going on before Adam and Eve were created because um, there's Satan in the tree, right? So there was some kind of a conflict going on. And how does God deal with this conflict? Well, for whatever reason, and we've discussed what some of those reasons might be, God chose not to eliminate and execute the opposition. How does he use his power? Well, he created planet Earth and this universe. And things start out wonderful. God spoke. Let us make human beings in our image. Okay, do we look like God? Or what is this saying here? Making them reflecting, make them reflecting our nature, our character. And so God created human beings. He created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. So Adam and Eve were created with the nature, with the character of God, which if I could just say in a nutshell, what is that? It is to be other-centered in our love, loving others. Okay, they, were, they were made that way. Things were perfect. And then, of course, we know that um, they talked with a snake in a tree who said, uh, that's not true. God is lying to you. He's untrustworthy. He's restrictive. And, of course, they bought the lie. And then God comes for a walk. And who came for a walk in the garden? That was Jesus. All right? Jesus, the, you know, the God who lived in a womb for nine months. And what did they do? I mean, they should have run into his arms and said, you know, this whole thing happened. We can't believe it. We just talked to this snake and uh, help us out. And instead, that evening they heard the Lord God walking in the garden and they hid from him among the trees. And that is essentially the record of human history from Eden to now. And basically, by and large, people are scared to death of God, running away from God. All right, so the Old Testament, as we've spent a year and a half going through it now, describes it's very dark in so many places. Look at this country. Darkness and distress, and this is a spiritual darkness. The light is swallowed by darkness. And Isaiah, of course, wrote just before the Assyrian captivity. Everything is just falling apart. There's no true knowledge of God in the land. Everything is dark. And even about God, clouds and darkness surround him. But righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Even about God, there have been uh, incredible misconceptions. The last book we talked about before break was in the Malachi. And remember, God said, you have said terrible things about me in Malachi. So um, human history is a record of people really believing and saying terrible things about what God is like. How can God break into this? Well, we think about who God is. He alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. Sounds very distant and intimidating. All right, what does the unapproachable light do? 
Well, how could he? How would he choose to come? Now we just think about this. We, you know, he came as a baby, and we know the story, and we've read it a million times. But what were God's choices here? Why did he not just come as a fully developed man? Um, you know, maybe very tall, very powerful, a prince, a king. Uh, couldn't he have just, with the right miracles and the right display of force, had every single person in the world on their knees and worshiping? Okay, why did he choose to do it this way? Right? And he comes as a baby. Why did he choose to come? I mean, he could have come, he could have died coming as a human being. I mean, as, a, as an adult human. Instead, he came as a baby. And I think the point here is, again, if we are terrified of God, how can he slip in and get the truth to us? Um, is anyone afraid of a baby? No one's afraid of a baby. And so he comes in the most... Uh, in the least intimidating way possible. I mean, just like in the garden, God comes for a walk. Okay, he didn't come and he said, where are you to Adam and Eve? I mean, didn't he know where they were? Right? It was the least intimidating way that he could come to them, but they're scared to death. Okay, so now God comes as a baby. Okay, no one's afraid of a baby and he slips in to Satan's kingdom to dispel the lies and to reveal the kind of person God is in character. And so we read ahead to Philippians. This incredible condescension of God is amazing. He always had the nature of God, Jesus, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Okay, Jesus is God. He is equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. Unbelievable. And so when we read and we hear Jesus say the words, take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I am humble, gentle and humble in spirit, okay, the meaning is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is gentle and humble in spirit. God himself is gentle and humble in spirit. And God can't just say those words. I mean, they're in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament. But we don't believe them unless we have a very believable, credible demonstration, a life where we can see that these words are actually true. And so that's why I think the disciples even didn't really get it at the time, that that person who walked with them was none other than God. And that's why so many of the books written much later begin with this incredible, it's like, wow, I mean, that was, that was really God that was with us. And so Hebrews 1 opens, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. He reflects the brightness of God's glory and is the exact likeness of God's own being. We've read this verse so many times, but again, Jesus was not bright. And if we have seen the nose of Jesus, that doesn't mean we've seen the nose of the Father. It's not like that, but he reflects the brightness of God's character and is the exact likeness of the kind of person God is. We want to know what God is like. This is where we turn to find out what he's like. And so, just like Hebrews 1, John 1 opens the same way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was the source of life, and this life brought light to people. Again, using the dark light uh, concept. This was the real light, the light that comes into the world and shines on all people. The Word became a human being 
and full of grace and truth lived among us. Uh, the Message Bible says God moved into the neighborhood, and that's really what he did. No one has ever seen God, that is, no one has ever really seen God. The only Son, who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's why he came, he came to reveal the kind of person that God is, that we would come to trust him again. And so in Matthew, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right? And that was God that was with us. And it's, it's somehow difficult for this to sink in. Um, and, and I've talked with people even that have gone through the seminary and Adventist pastors, and it wasn't until you know, fourth generation Adventist, and all of a sudden it dawned on them. That was actually God. We may use lots of words. He was divine. He was the son of God. But to actually internalize that he was none other than God, equal with God, is, I think, revolutionary. All right, so we open now with Matthew. All right, shall we just skip over the descendants of Jesus? Is there any reason to have this in here? I think it tells us again something about God. So we get this long list of people, uh, starting with uh, uh, Abraham. If we read the Luke account, it goes all the way back to Adam. And we look at the people on this list. Uh, Judah, do you remember the life of Judah, what he did? Well, we read on here, Perez and Zerah, their mother was Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who slept with Judah. Um, we read on here other people. Boaz, his mother was Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab, the prostitute. We read about uh, Ruth, the Moabitess. We read about the disgusting god of uh, Moab, who demanded that the children be placed in the hot, fiery hands of the god. David, and then we read on. David, Solomon, his mother was the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Who was that woman? Bathsheba. Now, why doesn't Matthew just say his mother was Bathsheba? Almost seems like he can't bear to write it down here, that the wife of David, the mother of Solomon, was the woman who had been Uriah's wife. I mean, the woman that David committed adultery with and whose husband David had murdered. Rehoboam, we talked about him, responsible for splitting the kingdoms into Judah and Israel. And we read through the other kings, um, Ahaz, wicked king Ahaz, uh, Manasseh, who killed so many people that the streets flowed with blood, Jehoiachin, we read in the end of Jeremiah, who was such a foolish and a weak king, leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Now, if you were God, would you choose different ancestors than these? If you're going to come, you're going to arrive in the flesh. Would this be the family line that you would want to have? Um, I think it, even the ancestry says something to us about God. He is fully identifying with humanity. And even by you know, the ancestors that he has here, representative of the human race. And so he comes. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And do you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. Okay, so he has, comes, he's born, and not even uh, you know, the place that he has, spends his first night is wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a feeding trough. And so the angels get this message, or give this message to the shepherds. This very day in David's town, your Savior was born, Christ the Lord. And this is what will prove it to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. 
Right? That's pretty good proof. So here comes the Messiah and uh, his humble birth. I mean, God's incredible condescension. And I think he does it this way to make a very strong statement about the kind of person he is. And then what happens? Suddenly a great army of heaven's angels appeared with the angel singing praises to God, give glory to God in the highest. That is to the highest level of praise that they can possibly give. They give it at this point. All right. And why is that? They've been a part of this whole great controversy, the lies about God. He's vengeful, arbitrary, exacting, and on and on. They've chosen to remain faithful to God. And now they see this incredible manifestation. I mean, Jesus, he'd always been with them, right? In heaven. And now, where is he? He is a baby. And all they can say is glory to God, just to the highest level. This is the most incredible thing they had ever seen. And so where did he grow up? Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you see the purposeful choice of God, giving himself no advantages, coming from the most humble of beginnings and even choosing to grow up here in Nazareth? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? So the point is, God comes and John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now we, we think of the kingdom of heaven or at least I had before, as the second coming with trumpets blasted from angels on clouds. But this is it. The kingdom of heaven is near, or the king is near. And Jesus began to preach his message. And his message was, turn away from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is near. And he defined this kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. That's the kind of kingdom of heaven he's trying to usher in. And then he would even say, the kingdom of God has already come to you. And then finally, the kingdom of God is within you. Is this what they were expecting? They were expecting a Messiah, conquering hero, defeat the Romans. And instead, they get this man from Nazareth who would tell them things like the kingdom of heaven is actually within. It's internal. Don't be looking for an earthly, powerful kingdom. Right, so the point is, and, and going back to the very beginning here, is that the people who live in darkness, that's us, that's the human history up to this point, will see a great light. And on those who live in the dark land of death, the light will shine. And what is the conclusion now? John, looking way back on the whole experience, would say this. Now, the message that we have heard from his son and announced is this. God is light. And there is no darkness at all in him. All right. So if we take Jesus, the clearest manifestation of what God is like, and we everything else that we read or hear about God, it is measured up to the life, the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus, I think we come to the conclusion God is light. And we look back on those Old Testament stories that we spent so much time talking about, that we have a difficult time understanding at times. But we realize God is like Jesus. Now I'm going to go back and work on some of those stories and I think answers come when we take Jesus to be the pinnacle of all truth. All right, so let's go back now to Matthew and what I wanted to spend most of the time talking about today is Jesus' first real sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we read in Luke that he actually spent the entire night in prayer before this sermon because he's now going to announce basically his platform, his kingdom. 
And so Jesus saw the crowds, went up a hill where he sat down, his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. And imagine Jesus here looking out on all of these people who are expecting something totally different from the Messiah, uh, totally different from what he came to bring. What should he say to them? Well, look how he starts out. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are those who mourn. God will comfort them. Happy are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Happy are those who are merciful to others. God will be merciful to them. Happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. Happy are those who work for peace. God will call them his children. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. Now, this is very, very dense. Each line here has incredible meaning which, which builds on itself. And so I want to go back here and start with uh, happy are those um, who know they are spiritually poor. And let's just see what, what kind of a message is he coming with here. So what would that mean? Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Did the religious leaders in Jesus' day know that they were spiritually poor? Or were they spiritually poor? Yes. Um, and he said, because you think you can see, that was the problem. They thought they could see, but in actuality, they couldn't. So what is the process then of recognizing that you're spiritually poor? Uh, I think it, in essence it is, you have a true revelation of God, a true revelation of God's character. You see God as he is, and by contrast, you cannot help but see yourself for who you are. And there is all of a sudden this recognition. I am spiritually poor, but that's, that's good if that recognition is there. Uh, who, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. I mean, this is just what the thief on the cross began to experience. He's watching this one hanging next to him, forgiving people, taking care of his mother, and it was that revelation that opened up some insight to him. His eyes became opened. I think this is what uh, Peter experienced. When Peter saw what had happened, he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Okay? It is a true recognition of God's character and then being able to be receptive to that. See, spiritual pride, where everything is just shut off and we have the truth, and this is, this is what the Pharisees, uh, the, the mindset that they were in, God can't work with those people, all right? Because there, there is no, uh, they're not willing to let God work with them. So that has to be the starting point. We have to be willing to change, willing to receive the truth from God. And we read the, the Laodicean church in Revelation, the end time church, and you say, I am rich and well off. I have all I need. And this is not talking about money, but this is in terms of spiritual uh, sense. There's satisfaction. We're reasonably good people. Um, everything is pretty good. But you do not know how miserable and pitiful you are. You are poor, naked, and blind. I advise you then to buy gold from me. Again, not real gold, uh, but uh, spiritual wealth, pure gold, in order to be rich. Buy also white clothing to dress yourself and cover up your shameful nakedness. Buy also, some, buy also some ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. Okay, so step one is we have to be able to see with our spiritual eyes. 
Okay, what happens now then? If we have that recognition, we see God for who he is, or we just begin the process, and then we begin to see ourselves. And I think the natural thing then is we mourn. Happy are those who mourn. And fortunately, God will comfort them. Because when we see ourselves and we see that rooted down, we are selfish to the core. We are not like God. There is a great desire to change. And that desire to change comes out of not liking perhaps the fact that uh, there is so much selfishness and things that are out of harmony with God. And so even Paul would say, I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil that I do not want to do. And he would say later, for I am the least of all the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. And this was Paul. Again, if we're looking at God, not that God wants us to be beating ourselves over the head, but we cannot help to see that that, uh, we are not like God in character. There's a great desire to change, I think. And so after Jesus died, the people who gathered there to watch the spectacle, they just came to watch the spectacle, But when they saw what happened, they all went back home beating their breasts in sorrow because you do not expect someone that you're torturing to death to forgive you and to be so gracious and kind. And I think that very, very strong impression of seeing Jesus on the cross, what he went through, uh, that had a very powerful impact for the people that were there. Okay, so what what then is is the next um, thing that would naturally come? Well, if self is out of the picture, okay? We hate that, that is within ourselves. Then happy are those who are humble. They receive what God has promised. And I like the New Living Translation, God blesses those who are gentle and lowly for the whole earth will belong to them. Okay, so there's a process where the me, myself, and I, survival of the fittest, selfish motives that are at our core, uh, that we want to get rid of that. And when you do, then humility takes its place. And Jesus said, if you want to be great, you must be the servant of all the others. How do we know that to be true? Well, we see Jesus himself doing that. And if you want to be first, you must be the slave of the rest. The Son of Man did not come to be a slave master, but a slave who will give his life to rescue many people. And I think when we come to admire that our God serves, our God is humble, then this process of change within us begins to happen. All right, so then what happens? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Okay, self is out of the way now, and the process of great desire and yearning for our own character transformation is natural. And so David yearned for this, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament spoke like this. Jeremiah Why are my wounds incurable? Why won't they heal? Do you intend to disappoint me like a stream that goes dry in the summer? Lord, heal me and I will be completely well. This sounds to me like craving for uh, a change of heart, righteousness. Okay, how does this work? Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. The veil is removed only when a person is joined to Christ. And I think this is what I just said a few minutes ago, I think when we come to see God is like this, God is like Jesus, we're joined to Christ, the veil is removed. And whenever a person turns in repentance to the Lord, the veil is stripped off and taken away. And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continue to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the character of God, 
are constantly being transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor and from one degree of glory to another. And I always wondered, why is it that this is described as a mirror? I mean, what do you see when you look in a mirror? See yourself. So how is it here that we behold, the veil's removed, we behold as in a mirror the character of God? And it is because I think there is a natural process when we see God for who he is, really for who he is. And what comes back is a reflection naturally in ourself. We are changed into the character of God by beholding, by in, being in a relationship with the true God. So it is like a mirror. We see God and the reflection that comes back is Christ in us. And then in Ephesians, yes, may you come to know his love. What does that mean, to know his love, to know what he's really like? God is love, although it can never be fully known and so be completely filled with the very nature, the very character of God. Okay, he goes on. What happens next? Well, happy are those who are merciful to others. God will be merciful to them. Okay, everything that's been described before has been internalization. We recognize our spiritual poverty. Uh, we don't like that we're that way. Uh, out of that comes humility, um, a desire for righteousness. But then I think the most natural thing next is there is now love to give for other people. Okay, we're merciful to others. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now there are actions that flow from something that is within. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The whole law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets depend on these two commandments. And so we really are only capable of loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, when that love comes from the change that has happened inside in our own life. We're not capable of it otherwise. The Pharisees are the best example of that, externally keeping the law right down the list. Inside, they did not have that love, and so therefore they really did not love their neighbor. All right, so the, the actions then, the life begins to live out in this way. And in James, we read about Abraham. How was our ancestor Abraham put right with God? It was through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Can't you see? His faith and his actions worked together. His faith was made perfect through his actions. And so Abraham was called God's friend. See, if it is not lived out in our life, and that is the natural thing, it's not like we have to work, but if it is really internalized, it can't help but to be lived out in the life. And this is, um, I think, the real danger sometimes of Christianity that is not internalized the truth about God. Because what are we supposed to come to the world with? It is the message, God is love. What are the two great commands? Love for God, love for neighbor. So if we come to the world with a message, hey, God is love, but then in our actions, there is a dagger in the back. What does that do to the message, God is love? totally negates it, right? And it's even worse than that because uh, in medicine, when you give a, a vaccination, what, what's in the vaccine? It's the very thing you're trying to inoculate the person against, all right? So if we come even with a true message, but in the actions, the actions completely betray the true message, then people are forever shut off from really coming to want to you know, become a Christian, want to see the true God, 
the words and the actions have to be in harmony or, against, or else we inoculate the whole world against the true God. And so again, about the life, the actions, John the Baptist came with the same message and the people got it. And they said very sincerely, the people asked him, what are we to do then? And his answer was basically, we'll live that way, love other people. And he answered, whoever has two shirts must give one to the man who has none. Whoever has food must, must share it. Some tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what are we to do? Well, don't collect more than is legal, he told them. Some soldiers also asked him, what about us? What are we to do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your pay. And so if, as we look at ourselves and we see, boy, I am just not a very loving person. Why won't God change me? How come he's not changing me? Uh, the change begins to happen as we begin to love our neighbor. We don't condemn. We make specific choices like John the Baptist um, said here. Uh, we make specific choices to begin to do what is right. And then in that relationship with God, healing begins and continues. Okay, so out of that, out of the life that is begin to live in the new way, happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. The pure in heart, this is to have the law written on the heart, the law of love, the new covenant. And the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law with them and within them and write it in their hearts. And the law here, ultimately all love, all law points to love for God and love for neighbor. So it's not going to be 10 commandments on a wall somewhere. It's written on the heart, on the mind. I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them will have to teach a neighbor to know the Lord because all will know me from the least to the greatest. We've talked so much about the words to know. Remember, it's intimate, personal, relational. It's based on a true knowledge of God. And this ultimately is at the root of everything that is important. All right, and then what happens? Happy are those who work for peace. God will call them his children. What does it mean to work for peace? Well, it's interesting that peace is associated with the good news again and again. Christ came and pe preached the good news of peace to all. Hey, what does that mean? It is through Christ that all of us are able to come in the one spirit into the presence of the Father. We spent some time talking about what is the good news. If you just go through all the references to the good news. And the good news ultimately is about God's character. The good news is that God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. That is the good news message. And if there had been a conception here that God is one to be greatly feared, he's a tyrant. And now we realize, no, God is like this. Now that is a message of peace. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. And this is the message that we come to people with. So stand ready with truth as a belt tight around your waist, with righteousness as your breastplate, and as your shoes, the readiness to announce the good news of peace. We come to the world about a God who does not condemn us, a God who loves us, a God who came to demonstrate and to reveal what he's like. God is not at war with us. And how wonderful it is to see a messenger coming across the mountains bringing good news, the news of peace. 
And so I think what Jesus is describing here, okay, all these things have happened. This is what I hope for you, my people. And eventually when this has become internalized, it is the most natural thing in the world then to come to the world and to preach by our words, by our actions, the good news. And then finally, the last one here, happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. And if what we have described, that there is a great controversy that is going on, that each one of us are very much a part of, if that's all true, uh, wouldn't you think that if the good news really does go out and if we're giving uh, a message, the right message about God, that there would come conflict and controversy and so Jesus warned of this. Remember that I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word and obeyed my teachings, they will also keep and obey yours. But they will do all this to you because of your bearing my name, my character, and on my account, for they do not know or understand the one who sent me. They don't have a true knowledge of God. But the nice thing is that he promises to comfort these people. So I like that when we read in Acts, as the apostles left the council, they were happy because God had considered them worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Jesus. So in God's kingdom, anyway, it does seem kind of the reverse of what we normally want here. The people at the top in God's kingdom are the ones who are persecuted for bringing to the world the good news message. Okay, and then finally he summarizes all of this here. This is his goal, this is his platform, this is what he wants. And he said, if we'll do this, then you are like a light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. So Jesus came as the light to the world. He came to unite his church, his people, so that they would be a great light to the world. All right, so he comes here in the first 16 verses here of Matthew, and this is his message. And this is what, this is his kingdom. And there is a very abrupt break at this point. I mean, this sermon goes on for three chapters, but he very much stops at this point, and it would be wonderful if we could sit and we could listen and see, but it seems pretty clear to me that there was a lot of grumbling at this point. Um, you're the king, aren't you going to defeat the Romans? persecuted. This is the ideal. What happened next, it seems to me, is that there was a revolt among his audience. And Jesus had to say, don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. That's what you're thinking. You're thinking that what I just told you is inconsistent with the truth all the way through the Old Testament. No, that's not true. I didn't come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning, or I came to explain it to you. And then he goes on with some very hard words. I tell you then that you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. Very much directed to these people who are grumbling and complaining at this point. And wouldn't this be kind of intimidating? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these are the people keeping the law better than anyone else. How do you keep the law better than people who have been so careful in their church attendance, in their tithe paying, in their Sabbath keeping, in the law all the way down. How do you be more faithful than that? And so Jesus describes, here's what I want from you. I want it on the inside. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. 
I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. And so the Pharisees, they could look on their list here and they could see, okay, I didn't murder anyone today. Good, check that one off the list. Um, Jesus said, no, if you hate your brother inside, um, it's all about the internals. Okay, that's another one. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But now I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. And wouldn't this have rubbed the wrong way? Again, religious leaders thinking they're doing well, they're keeping the list and realizing that, yes, externally, perhaps, I'm not committing adultery, but in my heart, I am. And you can see why they hated Jesus. So he gives example after example. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap, slap your left cheek too. And if someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. These are hard words for us, aren't they? Do we really live in this way? Well, this is, this is Jesus' kingdom. This is what he wants on this earth. All right, it may seem foolish, all right, but I think this is the ideal. This is the way he wants us to be living. He goes on, you've heard it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Was it believed in this time that God caused his sun to shine on the bad and good alike? Remember that even the disciples would look at a man who was born blind and they, they would say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And for the Pharisees, if you are rich, you're blessed by God. If you're poor, you're cursed by God. This was not the conception at all. And Jesus is saying, look, God blesses everyone, sends his son to shine on the bad and good people alike, gives rain to those who do good and those who do evil. Why should God reward you then if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. You must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in Luke, it says you must be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Right? So the point here is, is Jesus is saying my kingdom is on the inside. I want you to change from the inside and to begin to reflect my character. And again, we don't have to worry about this statement here. This is a, a promise of Jesus, not a command that we must be this way. It is a promise. If you stay in a trusting relationship with me, there will be a change. Okay? Your only work is to come to me and to stay in that relationship with me. Okay, and just a few more that would be, again, very hard to hear in that day. Make certain you do not perform your religious duties in public so that people will see what you do. It means just pointing exactly on every uh, detail of exactly what was wrong with the people in that day. So when you give something to a needy person, do not make a big show of it as the hypocrites do in the houses of worship and on the streets. They do it so that people will praise them. I assure you they've already been paid in full. But when you help a needy person, do it in such a way that even your closest friend will not know about it. Then it will be a private matter. That's the ideal. When you pray, do not use a lot of meaningless words as the pagans do who think that their gods will hear them because their prayers are long. 
Do not be like them. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. This is all in this first sermon of Jesus. I mean, we just read the words all the way through. This is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your holy name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we've memorized this, and sometimes when you repeat something so many times, the meaning comes out of it. But what does it mean? May your holy name be honored. Name is character all the way through the Bible. And so I like the message translation here. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Okay, what should our desire be when we come to God in prayer? It is, God, may your character, may the kind of person you are, may that really be seen. May it be revealed. May your kingdom come. Okay, what does it mean, may your kingdom come? Again, it's on the inside. Some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. His answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So our prayer ultimately should be, God, may your true character, may it be seen clearly throughout the world. And may that change people. May your kingdom within come. That's the ultimate. And so I left out so much here, but after all of this, all the way down to the end of Matthew 7, this very, very meaty section, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at the way he taught. He wasn't like the teachers of the law. Instead, he taught with authority. And again, the tone of voice, the way things were expressed, uh, we miss that as we read the words on the page. But this first sermon of Jesus is so potent, so powerful. Uh, I would encourage all of you to just read those three chapters in Matthew. That is the essence of the kingdom that Jesus wants to establish on earth. And as we go through these uh, four books, you can see I've kind of gone back and forth here, but I'm going to spend Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, basically talking about the life of Jesus. And then the last one, John, will talk about the events in uh, Gethsemane and at the cross. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, our prayer just now is also that the truth about you, truth about the kind of person you are, that this message would permeate not only here at Loma Linda, but throughout the world, that people would come to see you as a God of love, a God of light and with no darkness, and that this kingdom would come within and that there would be a great, great light that would go throughout the world. Amen.